Welcome to, welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people in the labor movement to the Madison area and the surrounding communities. I'm Sandy Park, a retiree from both American Federation of Teachers and AFSCME. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, and I'm Bert Zipperer, a member of Madison Teachers Incorporated Retirees. Today we, dis- we discuss the union election at Starbucks store in Milwaukee, share news of organizing at Planned Parenthood, get the latest on the UW-Madison, uh, UW-let's start over, on the UW-Oshkosh budget cuts, learn about a Las Vegas union leader and activist, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Thank you. A Starbucks store in Milwaukee voted in a union yesterday. Greg Jabosky spoke to two of its worker organizers after the election victory. Another Wisconsin-based Starbucks store has voted in a union. Yesterday, Thursday, February 8th, in a National Labor Relations Board-administered election held at a public library in Milwaukee, the 18-member recognized bargaining unit at the Starbucks store at Marquette University on West Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee voted 12 yes to 4 no, with two non-voters to join the Chicago region to join the Chicago region of Starbucks Workers United. The Milwaukee store is now the eighth Starbucks in Wisconsin to vote in a union, joining two in Madison and over 300 nationwide. Labor Radio spoke yesterday in Milwaukee to a happy Zyla Trask, a shift supervisor, and Ian Sherbet, a barista, who were part of the successful organizing committee at the Marquette University store, who were out celebrating the union win. Trask gave a brief rundown of the campaign. We started organizing in uh, November 1st. November 1st, and it's just kind of been a process of getting people on board, signing a union card, and then ending up filing our petition for the union, which now we just successfully won the union vote from that petition. And so no- November 2023? Yeah. That's pretty quick. It, it is. <laughs> yeah, we. It was. It was definitely necessary. The quick turnaround was. It was for sure made super easy by just genuine. Everyone. Everyone was feeling a lot of tension, and something needed to change. So. Trask and Sherbet felt that workers easily understood the need for a union just based on their experience. Trask recalled what they felt was seen by workers as one particularly notorious health and safety incident. Starbucks would put out these promotions that would super increase um, the volume of customers coming through. And um, our drains were not in the best condition for them. Uh And um, with the sheer volume of drinks that we were making, dumping water running into the drains and everything, uh, the drains got backed up and flooded. And it was something where it was until a customer complained about a smell, not any of the partners, that management decided to close the store that day. It took a customer complaining about the smell, but not any of the people working for the store to actually close. As has been reported from other Starbucks stores facing elections, and in truth, just about every workplace in the U.S. facing a union election, upper management shows a sudden interest in workers' feelings and ideas held in long meetings leading up to the vote. Trask and Sherbet described what it was like. The ex-store manager from the Oak Creek store, uh-huh. which unionized, they had brought in their old store manager to talk to everyone. And, and we, obviously on the organizing committee, had been prepared for this, but basically... 
higher ups were just kind of constantly in our store, but um, every so day it was it was every day. Tresk and Chabay said that the union busting role of these meetings was obvious. One of the things that I found the funniest was how, except for like this last week, roughly, whenever. I would, because I'm usually, I usually close the store. Whenever I would come in, any union busting, higher ups, anything, they'd all be packing up and leaving. Right as I was coming in. And so it felt very, oh, got it. You guys, you guys understand what's happening here. I also never really saw. Yeah, I mean, neither of us got talked to by any of them. We were the first two signatures on the. Yeah on the petition. Despite an organized effort by the Seattle-based International Corporation to bust the union election, Tresk and Chabay counted only two workers who were swayed. Workers felt supported by the Marquette University community as well, said Chabay. Uh, students of Marquette have been quite supportive. I, I've, I've had old classmates that I went to high school with who I expressed that they were excited and we've reached out for like press and things like that to all the clubs and we got a pretty pretty nice response out of them because the said if they never ever needed our support or vice versa, they would be loving to help. Some great people on, on Marquette. It surprises me every day, the support we get from our community because they know what's up. Sherbet yeah. <laughs> has a message for all workers. This doesn't end with Starbucks. If you're in an industry or a business and you feel like you're being mis mistreated, you have rights. And you have a right to organize and you have a right to come together with other people who are being mistreated and create something better for yourself. So get out and do it, Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> no, just exactly what Ian said. I couldn't have said it better myself. Those were Zyla Trask and Ian Sherbay, workers at the Starbucks location at Marquette University in Milwaukee, who as of yesterday's election victory are official members of Starbucks Workers United. The Milwaukee store now joins other Starbucks union shops in the next big step, getting the first contract. Despite federal law clearly demanding the employers engage in good faith bargaining with NLRB-recognized unions, the international coffee giant has so far managed to avoid entering a contract at every one of its union stores across the country. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Service and support workers at Madison's Meritor Hospital start bargaining next week. Frank Imspeck has the story. Service and support union members of the Service and Support Unit of SEIU Wisconsin Meritor Unity Point Health start bargaining on February 14th. The contract expires on March 3rd. There are about 500 people in the bargaining unit. The unit includes certified nursing assistants, environmental services, food services, and other support functions. Labor Radio spoke with Andrew Van Roy, a certified nursing assistant and member of the elected bargaining team. Andrew describes the membership mobilization activity. Word of mouth and networking have been the big kind of key things that I've been involved with. Making sure that the word gets out about the union and the benefits that it provides speaking in broad terms about the things that we are pushing for this year, um, what our actual theme is this year, that, you know, stopping turnover, reducing turnover. Yeah. So what I've found is, is key is who you know, like finding certain people who are also strong, pro-union people, people who are, you know, very much for workers' rights, um, getting those people on board, explaining the situation to them in, in you know, frank terms, 
and getting them involved and helping having it the, the more hands the easier the load andrew also noted that the union faces a big challenge as they build unity amongst the membership as there is a very high turnover rate especially among certified nursing assistants an increase in wages will be the focus of the contract labor radio asked if the union was aiming at a wage increase to compensate for the loss of purchasing power due to inflation, plus a cost of living clause strong enough to prevent wage erosion. Uh, absolutely. In fact, very much wages. And so for me, it has to match with inflation for sure. And it has to be a fair compensation for what we do. Scheduling is also an issue which relates back to the high turnover challenge. Negotiations begin on February 14th. The union is mildly optimistic that the negotiations will go well and not drag out. Thanks to union bargaining team member Andrew Van Roy for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. an organizing victory at Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. Carol Weidel has the story. Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin clinics across the state joined forces to establish a union. At a time when both Planned Parenthood and organized labor faced political attacks, this unionization represents a critical step towards fortifying the strength of both. Labor Radio was able to speak to Jamie Lucas, director of the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. This all started with just one conversation with one worker talking about how things might be better, how the mission of Planned Parenthood might be better brought to life if there was a union in place and workers had a formal say in their day-to-day -day and that, that experience caring for patients was centered in how policies and processes were, were written and, and carried out. That's how most organizing drives start, but then the workers really did the, the heavy lifting. They, they built their union, they built their structure, they talked about the positive vision that they had for their workplace and how their lives and their patients' lives and their, their families' lives would ultimately be better. We reached a point of majority support and the employer got word at that point about organizing and they sent out an email to employees and so we thought it was the right time to approach them to ask for voluntary recognition. They opted to go for an election, which you know they had the right to do, and we just really, at that point, the the, the name of the game became winning the election, and workers got on board and did, did what needed to be done. They voted in their union yesterday by 81%, um, and so now we, we're, we're moving on to bargain a contract that will help actually bring some of those positive visions to life and, and secure some of those protections and uh, uh, processes that they want to see, make, make sure that they become real within the clinics and they can continue being there for their patients because Planned Parenthood is a vitally important piece of our healthcare ecosystem. How many clinics does Planned Parenthood have in Wisconsin? Uh, they have more than 20 clinics, and there's uh, uh, workers who are also virtual or remote or work in a call center where patients don't actually go. So it's all over the state from Milwaukee and Madison to Racine, Kenosha, West Bend, Waukesha, La Crosse, Eau Claire, 
Sheboygan. Um, they're, they're, they're all over the place. And so, uh, it's going to be a, a wide, widespread geographic bargaining unit, but also it was really interesting from an organizing perspective to have workers, you know, just six to 12 in, in one clinic to another clinic and piecing together 133 of them across the state coming together over Zooms and, uh, was, was a really interesting way to organize, but they built some really, I think, strong relationships with each other that has been beautiful to see. You know, there's not a lot of other ways that workers get to connect with each other in the normal day to day. Um, how many, uh, how many employees are covered by this, would be covered by this contract when you finally negotiate it? Yeah, there are 133 right now who are on bargaining unit position. That was Jamie Lucas, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Next up, we learn the results of the workers' vote to unionize at Ocean Spray in Wisconsin Rapids. Workers at the Ocean Spray plant in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, voted against unionizing last week, with the final tally 41 in favor and 50 opposed. IBEW Local 965 organized the effort with workers at the plant. A similar drive to unionize the Ocean Spray plant in Wisconsin Rapids was voted down in 2014. Sources indicate that the recent unionization effort was in response to cuts to employees' performance bonuses and increases to mandatory overtime caused by short staffing. By contrast, a unionized ocean spray plant in Kenosha has experienced fewer takebacks and scheduling conflicts, according to Dylan Gorman, IBEW 965 business manager. Ocean spray management engaged in coercive practices prior to the election, including sending certified letters to each employee asking them to vote no and flying the CEO in from Massachusetts for a personal appeal to workers, according to Gorman. The National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, prohibits coercive tactics on the part of employers when workers attempt to organize. There are unlikely to be consequences for ocean spray in this instance. Workers voted. They will not have a union for the foreseeable future. A press release by IBEW Local 965 quotes Gorman, We respect the decision made by the Ocean Spray employees. It's essential to recognize the courage shown by all the workers throughout this process. Exercising their voice in such a critical manner is a cornerstone of our democratic principles. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Madison Labor Radio. There was an amputation and other hazards at the Green Bay plant factory, and it cost the employer $157,000. Carol Weidel has the story. The Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, fined a cleaning company in Green Bay $194,000. An investigation of TUFO LP found an employee's fingertip was severed while cleaning a pump's outfeed in August 2023. The employee was part of an overnight crew that was running and maintaining melt tanks used to create scented laundry beads. The household cleaning products manufacturer violated federal regulations for the control of hazardous energy during service and maintenance tasks. They also failed to immediately report the amputation injury as required. 
Inspectors determined that the company lacked written procedures that would have prevented employees from contact with moving machine parts and failed to retrain employees on procedures when they were reassigned to a new production area. The company committed one repeat, four serious and two other less than serious violations. The company has less than 15 business days from receipt of its citations and penalties to comply. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. And now from Frank Impspack, UW Oshkosh cuts 20% of its workforce. In August, the UW Oshkosh administration announced staff and faculty cuts, including early retirements. In October, individuals were notified, and as of January 19th, those cuts took effect. Exactly how many people have been affected is another question. While the administration talked about 140 actual cuts, plus about 75 retirements, That figure did not include faculty and staff who were non-renewed. Attempts by the union to get specific figures have been unsuccessful. A minimum estimate is that 20% of the Oshkosh workforce has been eliminated. In addition, UW Oshkosh no longer offer in-person classes at its branch campuses in Washington County and Fond du Lac. Labor Radio spoke with David Seamers, president of United Faculty and Academic Staff of Oshkosh, Local 6506. We asked him to outline the situation as of today, seven months after the initial announcements. He addressed what it is like to try to teach after an institution has been subjected to such trauma. Well, we've lost over 200 people here at UW Oshkosh, and no institution that loses a sixth of its workforce operates the same way, uh, especially if that's done so suddenly as as happened here. Seamers described the effects on his classroom teaching, noting that support to fix needed teaching equipment was simply not immediately available. When I interviewed Professor Seamers, he had just returned from university-sponsored tour with 24 students of Thailand. He returned to find this. But we've laid off our Office of International Education and let go all but one of the personnel there. And that means that our students will have many fewer opportunities like that. Our students need those opportunities. They need to get out of Northeast Wisconsin and realize that they can make their way in the rest of the world. The union has responded to the situation by working with the Faculty Senate and jointly producing a unanimously approved statement of expectations, Seamers explains. We worked with the Faculty Senate to set a set of expectations, and that was unanimously passed by the Senate. For instance, one of our our top expectation was that the university would cut more in terms of administrative posts than it would in terms of frontline posts that actually help students. And of course, the administrative posts are the ones who they have high salaries. We had a list of seven or eight expectations, including total transparency on budgeting. Unfortunately, those expectations were not met. The university hired a consulting group, and the consulting group is the one that got to identify who would be laid off. All the unions in the comprehensive system asked each chancellor to agree 
to meet and confer. Seamers describes the response. And we all got the same kind of boilerplate rejection. They push us away. And in the wake of that, we're trying to figure out how best to respond. And here at UW Oshkosh, we are contemplating a vote of no confidence against the chancellor. That was David Seamers, president of United Faculty and Staff of Oshkosh Local 6506 of the American Federation of Teachers, describing the situation at Oshkosh and what the union intends to do about it. I am Frank Hemsback from Madison Labor Radio. State budget support for UW campuses is falling short. This is part of a national trend, Carol Weidel reports. University of Wisconsin campuses are shedding students and employees. The most recently announced layoffs will be at the UW Oshkosh, where the workforce will be reduced by over 17%. The UW Platteville closed in November 2022, and other campuses faced reductions along the way. In Wisconsin, the Republican-dominated Wisconsin legislature underfunds public education, especially higher education. At the same time, the Republican Party is associated with wealthy donors. Professor Barrett Taylor wrote extensively about this in his book, Wrecked, Deinstitutionalization and Partial Defenses in State Higher Education. He researched four states for the book, including Wisconsin, where a policy agenda of divestment on higher education is characterized by an attack of public trust in institutions of higher education. Professor Taylor will speak about this February 29th from noon until 1.30 for the Visiting Scholars Program lecture series. The UW Department of Educational Policy Studies and the Havens Wright Center in the Department of Sociology are sponsoring the event. Registration is required through a link at the Havens Wright Center. That's havenswrightcenter.wisc.edu. The lecture will be February 29th. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. From labor history, we now learn of Hattie Canty, who led the Las Vegas Culinary Workers Union, Local 226, for over a decade starting in 1990. Keith Steffen has a brief biography of her in honor of Black History Month. Hattie Canty was born near Mobile, Alabama in 1933. She divorced and moved to California with two children. After five years in California, Candy moved to Las Vegas in 1961, where her second husband worked in construction. He died of lung cancer in 1975. Canty supported eight children as a maid, a school janitor, and eventually a room attendant on the Las Vegas Strip. Candy joined the Culinary Workers Union in hopes of earning a decent salary as a hotel maid. She felt that the labor movement continued the struggle for racial justice she had seen in Alabama. She said, Anytime I fight for anything in this labor movement, it benefits me in the civil rights movement. She became active in the union and became union president in 1990. She was the first black woman and the first room attendant elected president in the CWU. The union included workers from 84 nations. Candy promoted racial justice within the industry and her union. She also founded the Culinary Training Academy, which helps people of color find better jobs in the hospitality industry. Candy served as president of the CWU during the longest strike in U.S. labor history, 
leading the workers at the Frontier Hotel through six and a half years of negotiations for better labor standards. Culinary 226 became one of the largest unions in southern Nevada, representing tens of thousands of workers in the hospitality industry. While president, she fought for workers to receive living wages and organized a 75-day walkout against Vegas casinos so workers could get health insurance. Candy helped resolve racial friction in the diverse union, convincing members that solidarity could achieve gains for all. As a result, by the mid-1990s, maids and other hotel employees in Las Vegas more than doubled the average wage of service workers in other cities. Unionized Las Vegas hotel workers at the start of the 21st century could buy their own homes, send their children to college, and live a middle-class lifestyle. Hattie Candy died in 2012. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. And now for some national employment news. Total non-farm payroll employment rose by 353,000 in January, and the unemployment rate remained at 3.7%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in February. Job gains occurred in professional and business services, health care, retail trade, and social assistance. Employment did decline in the mining and mineral extraction and the oil and gas extraction industry. everyone for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Sandy Park. And our special thanks to all of our workers, Editor Franks Emspach, Assistant Robin G, Reporters Greg Jaboski, Janine Ranzi, Carol Weidel, and Damage Control Specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our Reader Coordinator, Engagement Editor Alice Herman, and to all of our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. Thanks, Sandy. Isn't she great? And I'm Bert Zipper. We would also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Now, please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise coming up with Dave Watts and the always amazing and informative Professor Bill Clark. Have a good night.